Alrighty, everyone, welcome back. This is Tavis Killian with Rare Petro, bringing you the last episode of Monday Madness for 2021. Whether you took the time to relax, travel, or meet up with folks that you like, I hope you had an enjoyable Christmas holiday. Now, we look forward to one more week of whatever and then the new year. I wrote this script while traveling back from Palm Springs to Bakersfield, so it's been a quick and busy weekend for me, but I loved every second of it. Enough about me and my holidays. I know you didn't come here for me to treat the podcast as a personal diary. You came here for the biggest statistics in the world of oil and gas, and it is time to begin. First, commodity pricing, which just might be a belated Christmas present. This time last week, WTI was valued in the low $68 range. It spent the rest of the week fighting to increase in price, but was able to climb to $73 by early Thursday, where it remained. This morning, however, it seems that WTI is making a mad dash for $75, and the price is currently $75.56. Still, I'm not confident it will stay at this high for long. Already, it looks like it's peaked and may spend the rest of the day falling. Just another case of Monday volatility. Natural gas is also doing well, despite struggling through the past few weeks. It had a big 30 cent range last week between about 370 and a nice flat 4 but it didn't make much progress in either direction. This Monday, it's climbed back up to $4, but again, pretty volatile. I think that the price action for natural gas is going to look like a roller coaster for the next couple of weeks with some pretty gentle rolls both up and down, especially with the news of milder temperatures in the northern hemisphere. Either way, these commodities are increasing in value, and that is a beautiful thing to see on a Monday morning. Next up is the rig count. The EIA delivered a little present on the eve of Christmas Eve in the form of a nice inventory report. According to the report, the U.S. is up seven rigs on the week, bringing the total to 586, which is 238 rigs more than we had a year ago. If we look at it basin by basin, the Haynesville gained one, the Cannon Woodfern gained two, and the Permian gained six. I think that this is one of the biggest single-week changes in the Permian that we have seen in weeks and maybe even months. If we look at it from a state perspective, things get a little more simplified. Louisiana is down one with New Mexico and Texas up four each. Five of those seven new rigs are seeking oil and all will be drilling horizontal holes. Other than that, there is no change in the offshore environment. This is one of my favorite results for the inventory report. Simple, short, and positive. To wrap up our statistics, we will have to take a peek at the inventory report. I'm sure you know by this point, but it is much more fun to read it on our website and easier to understand with plenty of graphs and other fun visuals. If you missed it, I've got your back. The EIA is on a roll. They predicted a two and three quarter million barrel drawdown, similar in magnitude to last week, and undershot the actual result by a full two million barrels, also similar to last week. The API also had a wonderful report. They alluded to a 2.6 million barrel drawdown, but it was even bigger at 3.6. Two significant drawdowns in the week of Christmas from both the EIA and the API. Well, first of all, that's good consistent results, and it just might be the best gift of them all. The EIA is now on its fourth straight week of drawdowns, and significant ones at that. The last two weeks have accounted for more than 9 million barrels. This brings the historical inventory levels to even further below that five-year range, but that is to be expected for this time of year. Inventory should start to trend upwards by mid-January, but there are plenty of factors that could be used to make a case against that. Gasoline found a way to add another 5.5 million barrels to the mix, which is simply a nice Christmas gift for your wallet. At this point, we are still below the five-year average by about 4%. Not too shabby, but again, to be expected for this time of year. 
This has accelerated the decrease in the price of gasoline by just a little bit as it is now down 2.3 cents from last week. This means over the past three weeks we've seen about a 6 cent decrease over time. While that may seem nice in theory, it's a result of a lot of federal string pulling behind the scenes. Everything from the SPR and ethanol mandates has done little to nothing to bring this price down. The SPR might have put more resources on the market to refine, but the nearly 1 million barrels in gasoline builds has minimally impacted the price. I know this next one comes as no surprise, but distillates maintained their inventory levels and propane dropped as low as it could without falling outside of its historical range. Very standard stuff for these two, but maybe 2022 will be their breakout year. And that is all we've got for our statistics portion of the podcast. It's been a few weeks since we checked on our friends in Eastern Europe, so let's catch up with the activities of Putin. As we progress further into winter, Russia has determined that, apparently, less gas is needed in the West, despite the European energy crisis. Gas on the Yamal Europe pipeline was flowing in the reverse direction from Germany to Poland for a sixth consecutive day on Monday, as Gazprom has not booked transit export capacity via that pipeline via Belarus to Poland in Germany for December 27th, and that's all according to auction data last week. Very convoluted, but just know that it should be running one way and is running the other. Another day of reverse pipelines makes for a full week, and I believe that would start to raise some eyebrows. The longer gas flows from Germany to Poland instead of vice versa, the more pressure on European gas prices. Thankfully, several U.S. LNG tankers and some others have declared Europe as their destination, and this, paired with mild weather, has lowered some of the costs of energy. President Vladimir Putin on Friday denied that the flow direction was a political move and said that Poland had, quote, sidelined, unquote, Russia in managing the pipeline. A Gazprom spokesman said, quote, all accusations against Russia and Gazprom that we are not supplying enough gas to the European market is absolutely groundless and unacceptable and untrue, end quote. He also referred to the accusations as lies. They basically accused some buyers of Russian gas, in particular Germany and France, of not making additional orders, slamming the reverse flow of gas that came as winter is just beginning as not the most rational decision. Regardless of what the intentions are, it seems no one is happy, so I hope this is not fuel added to the already tense fire in that region. Our next story will look at the first victim of the European energy crisis I was just alluding to. Keep in mind that much of this story is the result of a perfect storm of several factors, but it's a situation that is not entirely unlikely anyone else could experience. Sure, the odds could be lower for many better developed countries, but those odds are greater than zero. Last Thursday, Kosovo Energy Distribution Services announced rolling two-hour blackouts for two million due to an electrical overload. Kosovo is a smaller, partially recognized state in Southeast Europe that established their independence from Serbia back in 2008. They often fly under the radar, but their energy issues are now drawing attention from around the world. Europe's poorest nations struggled through some technical difficulties with a coal plant last month that led them to import electricity. At that very same time, Serbia was forced to cut electricity to customers, Britain's network operator issued a power supply warning, and France experienced a nuclear plant outage. Kosovo was scrambling to find cheap energy, but all of these issues led to those energy prices climbing to highs even worse than before, and that is why those rolling blackouts were imposed. I just looked up the weather in Kosovo, and things are staying just above freezing in the 40s, so I don't think anybody's going to die of exposure within those two hours, but it will surely get very chilly within their homes. Another thing to consider with these rolling blackouts is that that 
there may not be enough power generators to support truly essential services. Hospitals will have less energy to work with, so they will have to pick and choose what machines and rooms and services they will continue to power through the blackout. Hopefully no one experiences a serious injury or requires medical attention, say, a ventilator, to keep themselves alive while fighting COVID. Our modern life is not just enhanced by hydrocarbons, we require the stuff at this point. I want Kosovo to find a way to secure itself a bunch of energy, but at this point, even their neighbors are in no position to lend it out. This could become a nasty winter. To wrap up our news, we've got a story from Colorado and the Air Quality Control Commission, or AQCC. New legislation has been drafted covering many aspects of cutting emissions within the state, and surprisingly enough, these rules offer oil and gas companies a certain level of autonomy. The tiered approach requires a company to reduce emissions based on a percentage that is based on the number of hydrocarbons they produce and is mostly self-regulated or unchanged from previous requirements. Environmentalists are not too pleased with the decision as they expected more inspections and increased emission reduction strategies. While their hearts are in the best place, there is a point I would like to toss out there. The oil industry in Colorado has not really given the public a reason not to trust them in terms of emissions and operations. Colorado is home to some first-in-the-nation rules that, when initially implemented, seemed incredibly aggressive, but the company still found a way to comply. I believe in the argument of a free market regulating itself, and that sort of translates to this situation. Give the companies the ability to regulate themselves and see how it goes. Should someone try to cheat the system or stretch the rules, slap a fine on them, and that should serve as a lesson to everyone else. And if it gets bad, well, you know where to go with that. If it really does become too difficult to comply with the rules, companies can look at operating outside of Colorado, which would remove some much-needed revenue for the state. This constant push and pull can get annoying, but I'm very thankful that state regulators are not absolutely smothering these companies with unrealistic regulations and expectations. I think the state understands that these companies want to produce and deliver energy resources, and these companies understand the state is prioritizing air quality and emissions in the name of climate change. New rules will always come, and the system will work its way through. It just gets to be a little maddening if you look at it in too small of a time frame. But that is all the news and statistics that I have brought with me today. If you liked what you heard, there's plenty more content on www rarepetro.com in the form of written periodicals, other podcasts, and even plenty of video content. We love learning a little more every day and challenging ourselves with growth, and we believe you can do it too. If you've got any questions about energy, feel free to shoot them to me at podcast at rarepetro.com, and we might address it in an upcoming episode. Follow us on LinkedIn so you can read content as soon as it is released. And this has been Tavis Killian with Rare Petro. Until we see you next time, take care, everybody, and Happy New Year.